This Radio Days Africa audio amplified podcast is brought to you by the Vits Radio Academy. For more content and information, click to radiodaysafrica.co.za. Three, two, one. This is Radio Days Africa 2021 audio amplified. Download the Radio Days Africa app. Search Radio Days Africa in your app store. Well, good morning. Uh, Welcome to today's session. Uh, I'm David O'Sullivan, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce an old friend, a a colleague, and the most remarkable of broadcasters, given her wide range, her incredible versatility, the fabulous Sakina Kamwenda. Sakina, you're going to have to turn your camera on at some stage. Well, I thought I'd keep you in suspense for a little bit longer. Good morning, David, and good morning, everybody. I love the fact that you've got your SAFM banner in the background. Just a a subtle reminder that you have just finished doing a TV show and you're about to go into a radio show. And this is five days a week, Tina. Five days a week, uh, 3 a.m. start. And it's a long day, but I love what I do. So it, it, it really doesn't feel that bad. Yeah, as long as you uh, are enjoying what you're doing, as you say, it it doesn't feel like work. But uh, because you're waking up at three o'clock in the morning, that is un. I when I was doing breakfast on Kaya, I was waking up at four thirty. I was getting an extra hour and a half, and I was flat by the afternoon, by about four o'clock in the afternoon. What is it like for you? When do you actually are you able to say to yourself after the radio show, I've I finished work. Often not, um, because there's still so much else to be done. You know, it's it's a it's a rewarding, wonderful career, but it's also rather precarious in that because we are independent contractors, we don't have uh, the security that uh, permanency in employment brings. So you're always hustling, you're always moving from one thing to the next, because as I say, you just don't have that security blanket. Now, I'm, uh, I've got my chat panel open, so if you do want to ask questions, please do so. Um, Sakina and I will be able to see the questions coming up in the chat section. Uh, Tim's uncle tells me you can send voice notes as well, so do that. Tim will play the, the voice notes for us. And to remind you that uh, Radio Days Africa is presented by the Vitz Radio Academy under the auspices of the Department of Journalism. I hope you've been watching some of the presentations so far. 70 speakers over 21 sessions. And if you've downloaded the app, Radio Days Africa app, uh, in the plan, or just search for Radio Days Africa, you can find all the info. Or do what I've been doing is going to radiodaysafrica.co.za and you can listen back to the podcast in your own time. That's an easy way of doing things. Sakina, um, let us start. And I think I possibly was with you near the start of your career, certainly at a time when you decided this is a full-time career for me. But you had, you were actually, were you a maths teacher when you started dabbling in radio, uh, producing and things like that at 702? So I used to work for an organization called the Mathematics Center. And what we did is uh, we used to, among other things, develop Uh, aids for teachers and trying to help them overcome all these great barriers they have in teaching mathematics, but also training teachers on how to uh, teach mathematics, because 
it's 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 one of those things. Even today, you'll find that the same problems exist. Teachers don't know how to teach fractions. Teachers don't know um, how to teach time. Children struggle with the same sort of concepts over and over again. But what we found was the problem was not only in terms of pedagogy of teaching, but also uh, just simply gaps in content knowledge for a lot of teachers as well. So this is what we used to do. Um, We used to go out and find schools that the department would usually uh, contract us to do, and we would train the teachers and uh, the departmental officials themselves as well in just how to teach mathematics. So, what was it about your life where that prompted you to flirt with radio at that stage? Were you looking for a, a side hustle or was there an itch that you needed to scratch? It was definitely an itch. So at school, um, we had speech contest introduced when I was in standard six. And I used to participate in that um, every year since inception. And Uh, had this wonderful record that I won every year. So that had become something that I'd really enjoyed, public speaking and just speaking in general, debating and that sort of thing. So I always kind of knew that whatever I would do going forward would involve that. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I had the opportunity to go into a courtroom and I was expecting LA law And it wasn't quite L.A. law and it was very dull and boring. So I figured, no, maybe not. Uh, Maybe I just went in on the wrong day, wrong case. I don't know, but it did not move me at all, David. So I decided maybe not. Maybe that's not it. And so for a while there, I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. And I stumbled across this uh, mathematics uh, thing because I just needed a job and I got a job and it was at the math center. But um, incidentally found that I actually knew more about what was going on than some of the people who were there because I had done maths up until matric. So then I loved it. It was absolutely rewarding because we still have a problem with mathematics teaching in this country. So it was very rewarding when you would try and teach someone something and suddenly the lights go on. Um, Absolutely loved it. But I had a boss who you I think she she kind of puts Cruella de Vol to shame so (laughs) but I I was actually thinking about her the other day um there was this very mean vicious streak about her but I don't think any other boss in my life has taught me as much as she did I don't think anyone else has forced me to grow as much as she did but ultimately, you know, those human interactions, the, the, those relationships become strained and I just needed out of that space, not because I wasn't enjoying what I was doing, but because um, I felt I, it was no longer serving me. But there was always that little bug, the broadcasting yeah. bug at the back. And, and I thought, well, um, maybe this was as good a time as any to make the move. Now, tell me about that bug. How did you know about this bug? Where did the bug come from? What ignited the, what what caused the spark of radio in you? Um, It must have been a conversation between John Robbie and Clive Rice one morning on the radio. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
and um, talking about cricket. And um, this was when John, I think, was still doing that nine to midday slot uh, way back when, uh, yeah. when, uh, you know, 702 was still on AM. And then th- that conversation really got my attention and I felt myself getting so worked up and but besides that I realized that hey I actually quite like what they're doing here and uh, that's where I really got drawn into talk radio but because before that um, I was very much into Metro FM music and you know uh, what was being done at Metro FM at the time uh, Bob Radio if you could get there because you know the signals were a problem unless you were in Gauteng visiting uh, family so then I figured no I actually kind of like this talk radio thing and then I started listening because quite a lot of people who start in radio as kids and I'll talk from my own experience we pretend we're on the radio um, and we imagine ourselves and I did I went down that of setting up uh, my own little microphone and, and pretending I was a, a, a sports presenter. Did you have a childhood where radio appealed to you or was it the seminal uh, moment when you were much older uh, as an adult and then listening to talk radio for the first time? Radio always appealed to me. And, and, and I know this because my mom, I think for my 12th birthday, got me a little radio. I remember it so vividly. It was this little black, radio rectangular thing um, and it had honey written on it in pink it was my most prized possession Uh, so that is what I got for my 12th birthday because I was always listening to the radio whether it was a butikhan border to people I know I'm 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 revealing my age kind of but you know, these are the sort of things I listen to just about anything and everything uh, David but I, I used to love the radio Bikina, you got uh, a break at 7.02. How did that come about? Assistance? Did you apply? Was there an advert? What happened? There was no advert. It was sheer persistence. So I'd reached a point where I'd actually uh, decided I am going to pursue this. I had the full-time job still going at the math center, but I, I wanted to get into radio. I'd identified radio specifically, and I had identified that I wanted to work for either Kaya FM or 702. I was very clear. I I didn't even bother anywhere else. I I knew where I wanted to be. And I contacted uh, people, programming managers, and uh, they said, oh, you know, bring us a demo tape. Took the time, went and had the demo tape done, uh, dropped it off, nothing. Called, try to follow up, nothing. And... um, I, I, I did feel somewhat despondent for all, for all of one minute, uh, but then, you know, I was back on. And, and I remember the question that I persistently asked myself, how badly do you want this? I asked myself that question every day. How badly do you want this? And every day that answer was bad enough. I really do want this. So I would drive to... Kaya FM, they were still at Bolton Road in, in, in um, Rosebank and, 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 you know, call at 702 and just these doors just kept closing on me. And then one day at uh, Kaya FM, I got a call and um, I went through and uh, the programming manager, the guy, 
who was the program, programming manager said to me, uh, oh, uh, yeah, so I've listened to this demo and yeah, I, I, I think it's very interesting. Uh, but uh, so what are you going to do for me? <laughs> and yes, yes. And I said, what are you going to do for me? What, what does that mean? Um, and he says, yeah, don't, don't, don't be coy. Don't be silly. You know what I mean. We're all adults here. And I'm like, I'm not going to do anything for you. <laughs> and um, left there. And in, strangely, David, I wasn't, I wasn't angry. I was just totally perplexed. I, I, I couldn't believe what had just happened. Um, but I wasn't angry. Uh, I just kept it to myself, carried on. And then I had an opportunity to participate in Common Purpose, which is a leadership program. And uh, we had Tim Odise come through. And one of the days we had Clem Santer, who was the chairman of Anglo-American at the time. And we struck up because we had opportunity during this to engage with the panelists and um, started a chat with uh, Clem Santer. And, you know, uh, he asked, you know, so what do you do? spoke about that and, and I, uh, what do you want to do? Where do you see yourself? And I said, well, I actually want to have my own radio show. That's, that's what I really want. That's where I really want to be. And uh, he said to me, well, um, are you serious about it? I said, yes, I'm very serious about it. And at the time, Clem had written a book. He'd co-authored uh, the book, Who Moved My Cheese? with yes. Chantal Ilbury. And Chantal Ilbury, of course, the wife of Daryl Ilbury. That's right. Uh, remember Daryl, he used to do weekend breakfast at 7.02. And so he said to me, hold on, I'll call you back in five. We had exchanged numbers. So this is now fast forward a few days. Um, I called Clem and I said, um, you know, I thought about it and I really want to do this thing. So if you know anybody, if you can help me get a foot in the door, even if I have to make coffee, I'll do it. And he said, I'll call you back in five. He calls me back at five. Indeed, he says to me, are you able to go to 702 on Saturday morning? I said, absolutely. This was a Thursday evening. I don't think Clem will remember this. I remember it vividly because it was important to me. And so that was a Thursday evening. I said, yes, I'll make it on Saturday. He gave me Daryl's number. I called Daryl. Daryl said, can you be here at like 530 on Saturday morning? I'm absolutely I'm there. And I went just a shadow because, and, and uh, bless his soul, Daryl and uh, Andrew de Gouveia. You remember yeah, Andrew used to I produce for Jet? Andrew you was produced for working. me, yeah. Yes, and he was still working with, with um, he was working with Daryl on a Saturday morning. So I went, shadowed, and um, Daryl asked me, so do you think this is what you want to do? I said, absolutely. He says, okay, will you come back tomorrow? He's like, yes. Sunday, went back. Sat through it again, you know, tried to do a little thing or two, help Andrew out. And afterwards, he said to me, are you sure you want to do this? I said, absolutely. He said, okay, what I'm going to do, I'm going to send an email to um, Alan Matthews and you send an email to him. This is his email address. I did. He did. And Alan called me up. And Alan, sneaky bugger. Alan <laughs> then went on to quiz me about 702, which I, of course, knew cover to cover because I was such a fan and I was listening. And um, 
the, 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 I remember him asking me about the U.S. correspondent Connie Lawn at yes. the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and asking me, you know, what would you do differently and all those sorts of things. But I think um, he gleamed enough to know that I really was interested and I really was paying attention. I knew the station. And he said to me, well, we, we really don't have anything. I said, well, I'm willing to just come and hang around and make coffee. Yeah. Just so I learn, you know, the, 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 the trade. I'll do anything. I'll make coffee, I said to him. And he said to me, um, Sakina, bless your soul. We really don't have anything. I said, okay, but if there's anything, please call me up. Lo and behold, I think it wasn't a week or two later, he called me. And he said, we have a position open for a call screener, midnight to four. Oh, yes. I didn't think about it. It wasn't the awe. It was like, I'm there. I, I didn't think twice about it. I had a husband. I had little kids. I had a full-time job. I took it. And I went. Um, called screen from midnight to uh, four. And uh, then I wasn't there for too long, David, before they said, well, you know, there's an opening. You want to produce something on the weekend? Um, a word on when you still yeah. used to have Dr. Platts and um, um, Harry Seftel and Harry Seftel, all of those guys. And yeah, I was like, Andrew yeah, Levy, I remember that's them. It. Yeah. those days. And I said, I'll do it. So then I produced that show. Um, and I started then producing uh, the three to six show in the morning with uh, Kola and Jenga. Yes. Yeah. So, and this is how it all progressed to the point where I was then asked, um, would you mind doing a little uh, test for us? We, we, we just want to test what your voice sounds like on air. Like, okay, ultimately I want to get on air. And that's when there was an opening on your show for a traffic reporter. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so ultimately my first big break was with you on and your show. I remember so clearly when you joined the show, I was doing Afternoon Drive, and uh, as soon as you joined us, we felt we had the most overqualified traffic reporter going because you were so knowledgeable, you were so worldly wise. The fact that you were married, had kids, you had lived a life, and, and so you came with this big world experience. It just seemed traffic was a little too small for you, uh, but you were a great personality. I loved interacting with you. And it came as no surprise when you said, I've, uh, I've outgrown this. And it was with no resentment. It was, uh, it was sad to see the back of you simply because you were such a great asset to the show. But it was almost inevitable that it would be a temporary position. Um, I will go back slightly because I'm just curious, um, on this Kaya situation, where you were asked, what can you do for me? Um, I know naming names is going to be difficult. Is that person in broadcasting? I actually don't know. I, I know the person found their way to SABC some years back. And um, I actually, at the time when I saw them, he was like, huh, go figure. So you're still around. But I, I really don't know. I've, I've just not, you know, kept any sort of tabs on them. But it's definitely someone who a few years back was still in the industry. Sadly, I'm sure that there are a number of people watching this who will, for whom that rings a bell. It, it is not uncommon and it's not just broadcasting in so many facets of life. There is this 
undertone of, or maybe it's a, or, or even more explicit, what can you do for me? Did that ever happen again in your career? No. No. But, but a, a, a good learning experience and obviously one that you handled as well as you could under those circumstances. Let us move away from that and talk about getting into radio. And I think the lessons we're learning here is it's persistence that is, is key. But it's also these chance meetings, isn't it? This chance meeting with Clem Sunter, making an impression with Clem Sunter. You think, had you not gone and engaged with him, how different your life might have been. Maybe there would have been another way into broadcasting, but that was the path you took. And also the uh, accepting whatever comes your way. So if they're saying call screen for us between 12 and 4, you take that job. And I find in broadcasting, I, I get very angry with people, youngsters who will come and say, um, I want to do your job. Can I come and shadow you and, and do your job? Maybe you can take Friday off and I can do your job. You think it's that easy? Um, you've got to actually do the hard yards, and you did the hard yards. I'd also like to suggest that learning call screening in the early hours of the morning is the best place to do it because that's where you're dealing with the crazies and the drunks and the, and the fanatics, and you've got to control all of that. It's a good learning experience, isn't it? Uh, I, I think armed with all of that, you you set yourself up perfectly. I would like to talk more about working on my show. However, I think it's only a blip on your in your career. After that, am I right? Did Metro come come knocking on the door? Is that where you went to next? Yeah, because I, I always had these on air aspirations, and then I looked at this lineup at seven o two. Is John Robbie, and after John Robbie, it was Tim Modise, and then it was Jenny, David. Bruce and I was like I'm gonna have to wait for these people to die for me to get a break <laughs> that's right <laughs> because everybody at that point was at the top of their game and and I recognized that listen there's no scope for me here not at the moment and I recognize that if I really want to make it to get to some form of on-air gig in the near future I would have to leave 702. I'm going to do that radio thing. Or do you do it on TV as well? Where you say, don't forget, send us a quest chat box. And let me remind you as well that Radio Days Africa is sponsored by the Conrad Adenhauer Stiftung Media Program, Sub-Sahara Africa. It's a big title for a big organization with a big heart and big support. They've been a long-term partner and sponsor. And without their sponsorship, without their support, without their love for Radio, radio Days Possible. And it is also supported by the National Association of Broadcasters, Media Heads 360, Wise Buddha Jingles. Love that name. The U.S. Embassy in Pretoria. Thank you, Tiffany, if it is your game here. RCS Sound Software, Iono.fm, Samaro, and Podnews.net. Now, I find it appropriate that Metro should come knocking, given that when you were telling me as a, uh, as a youngster, you were listening to the radio, and things were starting to appeal to you. Metro was the first name that you, you gave. Was Metro your first love? Was Metro the first radio station that got you hooked? Um, no, because in the days when I started listening to the radio, there was no Metro FM. 
um, this was during apartheid South Africa, yeah. and, you know, yeah. uh, so there was no Metro FM. So when Metro FM happens, uh, then um, it was something that obviously as a black person, you were drawn to because it, it was new, uh, you know, it was exciting. It, it, it just brought all of these opportunities for those who were in that space at the moment, but um, also gave the rest of us that opportunity to live vicariously through them and imagine that we could do what they were doing. But Metro FM, so how I get to Metro FM, to the SABC, is when I made the decision that I needed to get to a different space where there may be more opportunities for me. Bob Mabena was still with Prime Media and he was on the verge of leaving to come to the SABC. <clears throat> so I went to his office and I said to him, Bob, when you get to the SABC, please, these are my goals and aspirations. And if there's an opportunity, please give me a shout. And he promised that he would do that. Bob left Prime Media, came to the SABC, I, in the meantime, um, took my own initiative. I came for an interview here at SAFM and I had never listened to SAFM when I came to the interview. And when they asked me, I was honest enough to say to them, I'd never listened to SAFM. And they still gave me the job. And I came in, they were still back uh, at that time in the dungeon at Radio Park. Yeah. And I was there for... Three weeks, I just made the move. Three weeks, and I got this call from Bob Mabena. And he asked me, where are you? Um, and I said, no, I'm around. He says, well, I need to see you immediately. And I said, well, you'll be happy to know that I'm actually in the building. Where are you? He says, I'm on the sixth floor. I said, I'm in the dungeon. I'm coming up. And I took the lift. I went to the sixth floor. I found Bob Mabena, Leo Mane. And they said to me, listen, we have a problem. Um, our talk show is experiencing a bit of a problem. We have a producer who's leaving. Um, we, we need help desperately, like yesterday. Uh, and I said, well, I've just started at SAFM. And they asked, how long have you been there? I was like, three weeks. I'll have you know, I walked out of that meeting with a resignation letter in hand. So <laughs> I, it, it, it wasn't the best moment of my life because all the way down, I'm thinking, what am I going to say to Dr. Snooki Zigalala, um, whom I had told of, you know, how passionate I was about what I wanted to, how do I say, uh, you know, that, listen, thanks, but no thanks. I'm leaving three weeks later, three weeks, David. Uh, but surely a, uh, clearly your gut spoke to you on that once again. Sorry to interrupt, because I find that as as you're now launching yourself um, as a on-air presenter, you take what you can get. And SAFM at that stage, I know it, it, it's been through its ups and downs, but you would have been on a very good firm wicket, big transmitter network and a great opportunity. What part of you said three weeks is too short? I can't give it up. What if Metro doesn't work? Was it a gut feel that Metro was your home and not SAFM? It was, but also because I was once again upfront with Metro FM, with, with the guys, with Bob and Leo at that time. And I said to them, guys, I have on-air aspirations. Um, I'm producing at the moment uh, because I'm, I'm willing to pay my dues, but ultimately 
this is where my journey is headed. And so we had agreed in that short meeting that, okay, should the presenter uh, for any reason not be available, you would be the designated stand-in. So that was the clincher. So I was happy to hand in that resignation letter uh, sheepishly because I really, I really felt bad about it. I really felt very bad. Um, I think to this day, SABC still owes me about 800 rand, um, I think, for, for uh, pay as you earn and whatever else, pension fund, whatever monies. I, I have never cashed it because I never took it because I felt bad. I still feel bad about how I did SAFM at that point. Maybe they're going to charge you. They're going to charge you 800 rand rent for the room for this uh, Radio Days <laughs> Africa webinar. Uh, no. Sakina, I think there's an important lesson again here in that you've got to go with your gut. You set your goals, you set your dreams, you know where you want to go and where, and if something is deviating and you feel you should be taking that path, you've got to go with what you've set for yourself. And you did exactly that. I can imagine that your heart was in your mouth, but I'm a big fan of gut feel. And if you knew instinctively Metro was the right way to go, um, as you say, sheepish, but happily you handed in your resignation. We'll move on to Metro side, but uh, we've got a voice note. So have a, let's have a listen. Please send voice notes. You've been getting the number up on your screen as well. Send questions in uh, the, the chat box. Um, some lovely things here. Marvin saying, uh, I'd like to know where did it all start? When will it end? We've done where did it start, Marvin? Uh, when will it end? I think it's 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 going to be, be the, in the next century. Uh, Claire Moisa says, "What? Did Sakina just drop a Kaya bomb?" I made it uh, sure that it's no, it's not a reflection on Kaya. It was a, a very very long time ago. Yeah. And then and Shweshwe, Shweshwe, my old producer. I admire you both, Sakina and David, best broadcasters I've worked with. But how you both managed to make radio sustainable? Well, probably you more than than I have seen as I am now. I've, I'm now resting on my laurels. I've, it's, it's, um, I've given up that now. I'm, 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 I'm self-unemployed and, and happily retired from radio for now, you see. Uh, let's have a listen to that voice note. Good day, um, David and Sakina. This is Bongi from BMH Radio. This is for Sakina. Sakina, you've been doing this for years and years and have remained consistent, you know, all the way. What battles did you have to fight and combat? And what do you think still needs to be done better or fixed in order to make the road easier for female broadcasters as it is easy for um, our male counterparts? You know, are we there yet where females are adequate enough in this space? Women are producers are at the forefront executives in the space, but they're not allowed to make the important decisions in the board meetings, et cetera, et cetera. What still needs to be done to fix this? Or are we there yet? Sakina, very nice yes. question. Thank you so much for that. All yours. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Um, at the moment, like it's always been, as a Black woman in particular, you are at the bottom of the pecking order. And that's just the truth of the situation. You are most dispensable in this industry as a black woman. The men are at the top, white men in particular, even today, as we talk about um, a transformed industry, um, the advertising agencies uh, and, and, and where they decide to put their money, David, is still in the main where white men sit in this industry. 
So you have your white men, then you have black men, then you have white women and black women at the bottom of that order. And when changes are made, I'll tell you a few years ago, big changes made in lineups here at the SABC. Who were the main people who suffered? It was black women broadcasters. You are always first to go. If they need to chop, as a black woman, your head is first on that chopping block. So you need to know that. Whatever everybody else does, you have to be 10 times better, work 10 times harder at it. And then, even then, you are still not enough. Not enough for them. Not because we are not enough. Not enough for the industry. And that is the truth today. Such a disturbing uh, reality that you've painted there, Sakina. Uh, I'm wondering uh, to what extent it's a fault radio management, because you made that very interesting observation, which I think is worth exploring, that the money goes where the white men are. And I'm wondering if the problem lies with the media houses, the buying agencies, that the people who are responsible for buying airtime on behalf of their clients are the ones who are blinkered and their attitudes need to change because if their attitudes are changed, naturally station managers' attitudes will start changing as well. As long as soon as people realize that the buying power rests with the black women as much as it rests with, uh, with white men, Possibly we'll see attitudes changing. Do we need to talk to do the the ad does the ad industry, the 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 media buyers, do they need to change? They don't have to change at the moment because you don't have um, an industry from the management at the stations going all the way down who uh, make it necessary for them to change. So mm -hmm. we don't have managers in the radio space at the moment. I don't know. I think this is to be since I got into radio, the worst period for radio. We have these watchdogs um, who do the weirdest things, you know, and, and I'm not saying this because I'm trying to be snobbish or to be um, someone who thinks they know it all or. But, you know, David, there, there, there are still some basics that you need to adhere to. And, and, and there are people on the radio that I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot barge pole, yet they are on the radio. Not only are they in radio, people walk off the street into a primetime radio show, and then you say to them, uh, something went wrong and everything comes to a standstill. You know, a deer caught in the headlights because they've not paid their dues. It's as simple as that. But it's because we don't have managers and we don't have programming managers, more importantly, because they have become watchdogs. They are weak. They are people who are basically propelled into these positions from who, where, who knows where. And they, they are not radio. And, and, and I'm going to say that unapologetically. We still have the exceptions, but in the main, radio is in trouble. Wow. I was rather hoping we had a situation where radio was starting to evolve. When I, I look at, for example, you uh, having a primetime TV show and a top rated radio show, and you've been doing it for years. And I look at uh, talk radio in particular, I look at power, I look at 702, and I see good, uh, in fact, exceptional talent coming through on the airwaves. And I thought, Things are starting to move in the right direction. However, you paint a much more pessimistic view. Radio is actually in trouble, Sakina. Um, I'm, 
uh, you, uh, somebody has written here, you speak truth to power. I'm going to listen very carefully when you say things like that. I'm, I'm, uh, and I'm glad you're ventilating it. Uh, it you paint a, a very pe pessimistic view. Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Of course, there's light at the end of the tunnel uh, for as long as people are willing uh, to be courageous and, and make the right decisions. Yeah. It's never a hopeless cause. You know, there's always a way to turn it around. But we, we, we've got to arrest all of the weird and wonderful foreign things that are happening. And that's different. It's not the same as evolution. <laughs> I have nothing against evolution, things changing and going in a different trajectory. That is completely different. I'm talking about people who are killing this industry because you appoint influencers and you give them primetime shows. When last, do you still listen to the radio, David? Let me ask you that. Uh, I listen to you and Mandy Weiner. Um, and I have to say that since I have uh, gone into my, my self-imposed exile from radio, I'm more of a podcast listener, but um, uh, you are on during my school run, and that's a, a, about it. I certainly don't listen to people who are on the radio because of a Twitter following. Um, I, I just That's almost a protest on my behalf. Um, I, I, I can't listen to that kind of radio. I want to listen to radio of substance delivered to me by people with substance. And you and Mandy are two of those people who deliver. Well, thank you, David. And, and, and you know, the, the, the sincerity of it all. Um, I find uh, that I, I listen to, I can tell you, I, I, I listen to Radio 2000, um, quite a bit. I, I find I enjoyed David Mashabella. Um, you know, Robert Marawa's always been there uh, for me. Like that's something I would listen to. I listened to, and I found myself going back and I'm listening to John Perlman at the moment. Um, but for a while there, I, I just found that as a radio person who listens to everything, I listen to student radio. I listen to community radio. People are always amazed at how do you know this? I listen to everything because I love radio. Mm. And I've just found that I was listening to community radio more and more than I am listening to commercial radio, um, which is telling about the sort of things that I have mentioned. But maybe that's just me. I'm willing to accept that it's just me. And maybe everybody else feels that, you know, this is just the way things are going. I, I feel like if I get through the next five minutes without rounding off your career, we've, we kind of stopped at Metro. So I now need... Uh, I'm going to go on to the questions. We've got loads of lovely questions coming through, and we can expand on the conversation we've had. But I just need the executive summary. You were on Metro. You won loads of awards. And uh, then was it SAFM after that? Yes, it was. But 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 I, I have to just reflect on my Metro days because uh, that was my heyday in radio. Um, that th Those were the best days. Uh, also, I think because I was basically allowed to do what I wanted to do with the necessary protection at the time when I started out. It wasn't easy because it was heightened political uh, climate in the lead up to um, Polokwane in the ANC. And as you know, 
when things are happening in the ANC, they are reflected at the SABC, or at least they used to be, not so much anymore. And I can say that, you know, um, without fear of contradiction. But at that time, that was pretty much the situation. And um, I was allowed, uh, thanks to people like Bob Mabena, like Leo Mane, who were there and understood what their roles were as managers, uh, who provided that buffer, that protection, so that you could do your job. Um, Subsequent to that, when they left, it became much more difficult. But I, I, and this is something that people don't know. The reason I left Metro, I love Metro. We had the biggest English talk show audience in the country. And we, we, we had just built this wonderful show on this wonderful platform, regular, you know, passionate and, and, and enthusiastic listeners. And we had a wonderful thing going, uh, which is where the awards came from, David. It was real. It was authentic. We went through many ups and downs on that show, but stood firm. Integrity carried us through. The reason I ultimately decided to leave Metro was it had gotten to a point where uh, the show had become a victim of its own popularity. So everybody wanted to be on the show. And this one day, there was um, a certain doctor, somebody who wanted to be on the show. And because the show was so popular, it was chock-a-block. We had like these long-running spot breaks, and it, it was just a mess. But the show was that popular. And then certain doctor, somebody wanted to be on the show. And we had made a decision that if anybody wanted to be on the show, because we could, they had to pay for the time, the airtime, because we could demand it. Dr. Somebody came and said, I want to be on Metro FM talk with Sakina and uh, this, that, that, and the other. And I said, well, Dr. So-and-so, this is how you do it. This is the procedure. Go via sales. They will help you. And then they will schedule it and it will happen. Dr. So-and-so didn't like my answer. Dr. So-and-so clearly had connections, went to the top of the SABC board, right to the top, chairperson. Got a letter, email, an email, and I was told, um, listen, can you please create an opening, schedule a space for Dr. So-and-so? And I was like, no. I stand by my response. This is how it is done. If Dr. So-and-so wants to be on this show, this is how they need to go about it. Um, management is at this point pleading with me, David, Sakina, please just, just give Dr. So-and-so because this is now coming from board level. Um, and I was like, no, it's not going to happen. This is what we had agreed upon. This is how it's done. So no. Okay. Please just say something. I said, no. Okay. Why don't you tell Dr. So-and-so to tell you when he wants to be on? No, but I said, no, ask doctor. And they said, okay. Dr. So-and-so, when do you think he gave a date? And I said, well, please note that I will not be available to do the show on that day. Um, I'm not coming. There most probably will not be anything wrong with me. I simply will not be reporting for work on that day. And I didn't. And the doctor was on the show and it happened. And that for me was that moment where I knew I needed to go. Did that happen before uh, that there was pressure put on you because there was a oh, time yeah. at the SABC explain yeah I I went through quite a bit um I remember uh, uh, the one more famous or should I say infamous moment was when I had um the three editors in the lead up to the Mangaung conference of the ANC oh, yes. 
and uh, they were in studio. And then I was told, okay, um, I need to tell them that there was something wrong because they are not going on air. And I said, absolutely not. I will not lie to my listeners. And I was told, go and say that there is a technical problem. And I said, I will not say it. There's no technical problem here. And that show was pulled, but I did not lie to my listeners. And, and, and that's the one thing today. And I've always said, the only thing I need to walk out of this SABC with or any place that I work at is my integrity. That's the only thing I need to walk out with. Absolutely. I think for anybody getting involved in radio, uh, you've made a very critical point there that what you've got to trade with is your reputation. You can have looks and good voices and things like that. But if you don't have reputation, if you don't have integrity, if you don't have trustworthiness, you can't do this job. Nobody will actually listen to you. Which came first, the uh, the editor's controversy? Or Dr. So-and-so, and can you remember Dr. So-and-so's name, or are you just being... I do remember cautious? Dr. So-and-so. This is the book that I'll write when I'm 60, 70 years old. Uh, <laughs> so That's a long time away. We want no. name names. Again. No, I won't, I won't pressure you into that. But you know, which came first? Which of those two incidents? It was definitely um, the editors. Uh, you know, but before that I had... And, and what was... The thing that upset me about that, David, was um, the lies that were told subsequently where um, and incidentally, those people are no longer at the SABC. They went on, called a press conference the next day and said, well, I did not receive permission from the SABC, which was a bold faced lie. And I called them and I said, but that is a lie. Because I called the political editor at the time to be part of this conversation. The political editor knew exactly what was happening and they had declined to participate because they had something else going. And I said, if you want to know, that was, as I said, in the lead up to the Mangaung conference, I bumped into the political editor, the politics editor at Lutuli House, where we had to go and get our accreditation. So there was so much lies being told. And at that point, I had to make a decision. I, I, I needed to decide whether I still wanted to be at the SABC. And I decided that I did and that I needed to find a way to fight my battles. Why did you think that leaving Metro would solve the problem rather than leaving the SABC? Because obviously the instruction was coming from up on high. No matter where you go within the SABC, that chain would still be above you. What made you stay under the umbrella of the SABC? The thing that made me stay under the umbrella of the SABC was because for me, I have always been about public service broadcasting, and which is still what I do today. Um, it's not about the money. If it was about the money, trust and believe, I would not be sitting at SAFM. Um, because there are, there have been offers to go elsewhere for more money. For me, it's about that service to the public and understanding, because I think many people don't understand, um, including some of our parliamentarians, what it means, what public service broadcasting means and, and, and what it entails. So that's the reason I stayed. And the reason I left the Metro FM platform was because it was the platform that was so powerful that had become a problem. It was 
way too powerful. I always said I had the biggest ANC branch in the country on that show. Tell me, uh, in fact, before we do that, I, I'm going to ask you about uh, Protect Me From Myself, that fabulous <laughs> moment, which you handled with such a plum. Uh, we've got another voice note. Let's have a listen to this voice note. Greetings, everyone, and special greetings to Ms. Sakina. I just joined the webinar. I just want to say, Sakina, I see you, I see you, my sister, and I see myself in you. And I'm coming, I'm coming. It's only a matter of time. Talk radio, sexual radio is the future because our people need information. Thank you so much and keep that smile. Love it when you interrogate them and they get all wet up and you just smile. Keep it going. Yeah, yeah. Big up, sister. Thank you very much. That sounded Thank like a, a message of praise. Oh, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, David, ultimately, this is what it's about. Um, I don't get out of bed. I don't do this uh, for fame. Um, I don't do it for fortune, as I say, I could be elsewhere if that was the case. Uh, for me, it's about the people. That 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 is what it is about. It's about listeners um, on TV. It's about viewers. It's about being of service to them. That's why I do it. There's a, a question from Isaac Minar saying, Sakina, please tell us about your broadcasts from the Polokwane ANC conference where Zuma was elected ANC president. Uh, the political dramas, late nights, long drives, doing obies in the rain and mud. Oh, I was doing 702 Ooh. in those days. That was a crazy time where I remember so well Joel Nechitenzi saying to us, don't worry, Tabu and Becky put it in the bag. Don't worry about oh, a thing. Yes. You know, David, uh, such beautiful memories. Hi, Isaac. Uh, good to hear from you. And, you know, as Isaac says, it was raining. So there we had these shoes coming up and, you know, I had to go and buy shoes, I remember, yeah. uh, because it was just so miserable, muddy where uh, the studios were. And then the SABC had this marquee next to the main marquee where we had set up like a broadcast center. And you speak of Joel Nechitenze, I bump into this group of Saki Matozoma, uh, Mohamed Vali Musa, you know, all those guys. And I say to them, guys, um, so what do you think is going to happen? Um, because the Zuma camp, say they have it in the bag and they showed me the numbers they say no like they said like joel said to you we've got it in the bag listen that night when and isaac speaks about you know the broadcast the long nights um i was on air that night uh, when uh, the election took place and when i got out there was nobody there david mm. everybody had left but 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 it was also a very seminal moment for me in terms of broadcasting. Um, there were very few people left in that SABC marquee, which is also why I've stayed the course at the SABC, because there was something wrong in people, journalists, crying because someone had lost an ANC elective conference. Now... And I remember saying, I don't understand this because it makes no material difference to my life, whether it's Jacob Zuma or Tabombeki. 
elects ANC president, yeah, they become the president of the country. And yes, I fully understand and get how that impacts on my life. But materially, as a broadcaster, in terms of my day-to-day living, how does one of them becoming the president induce me to tears as a as a broadcaster? As a journalist, yeah. And, it does and, make and a that, jot in your journalist life. And that, for me, was one of those aha moments you know it was an epiphany and I realized there needs to be another side here someone needs to maybe maybe I was you know overthinking it but I thought I I had a job to do because this cannot be it or the SFM studio uh, uh, Jeremy Max was doing the breakfast show I was doing breakfast and afternoon on 702 which was a little insane and because nobody was around that next day and anybody and and you couldn't get anybody in the morning because people had such bad hangovers that either drank themselves to in sorrow or drunk in celebration and the rare person that was around i had this agreement with uh, jeremy mags we'd send our guests to the other studio so there was the sight of guests walking from studio to studio across the muddy field it was insane that day. Uh, let us go to Sally. I'm going to Sally Satole from BMH Radio. I'm going to leave your question to last because it's a beautiful one t- to wrap up with. Uh, Claire saying you've always spoken truth to power, even if it was to the leaders in our own organization. Claire Mawisa, by the way, everybody. So you're dealing with a big broadcaster here. Uh, and it potentially could be career limiting for you. Were you ever intimidated or afraid? Never afraid. Um, You know, there's that saying, uh, courage is not the absence of fear. It's just the realization that something else is more important than your fear. Um, Intimidated? uh, Yes, people have tried, maybe on some occasions, somewhat successfully, but but never afraid, really. So I I remember um, there was a time here at the SABC when I was persona non grata. People did not want to be seen with me, David. Uh, they they simply um, would disappear into corners and take short lefts and short rights when I came around. And I don't blame them for it because um, everybody um, at that time thought that Claudi Mutsuneng hated me. And um, so they didn't want to be seen with me. And again, you know, the things we go through, um, you arrive and uh, during that crazy time, you would get these ludicrous instructions. Uh, you are not to do A, B, C, D. Uh, don't take this, don't do that. And I would, not as an act of defiance, but I always, and this is the only way I survived at the SABC, familiarize myself with the editorial policy. And my answer would always be as such, as per the SABC's editorial policy, A, B, C, D. And I think that's the only reason I'm still here. It's appropriate that I go to our next person, the man who's now hosting the afternoon show uh, on 702, because he too was at the forefront of intimidation at the SABC. It is John Perlman. Hey, John. Camera on, mic on. I'm trying. It's, oh, we, it's... Got your, we got your voice, John. That's fine. Yeah. Face for radio. <laughs> Good to chat to you and welcome, John. Yes, I, I must say, uh, it says, 
You cannot start your video because the host has stopped it. I don't know if this is quality control. There we go. I don't look that bad. Yeah. Hi, David. Hi, Sakina. Afternoon, everyone else. Good Hello, to, John. Good to see you, John. Good to see you. Yeah. I, I would presume this conversation is familiar to you about intimidation at the SABC. Yes, it is. Um, and I've been listening with, with, with great admiration to what Sakina has been saying about her experience. Um, those, it, it's tough there. Um, I think the thing that keeps people attached to the SABC, and uh, I was always asked by younger journalists, would I recommend they go to the SABC? And I would say absolutely yes, you must, because SABC fundamentally gave me my significant start in radio, but I think the diversity and richness of the place and the extraordinary range of reach, if you take into account uh, the fact that they broadcast in every single language, just made it a, a remarkable place to work in the 90s and, and long may that continue for all its downside. Um, an absolute national treasure and we all need to play our part shining it up. That. I you got agree. a question for Sakina at all, John? Um, actually, I, I've been told I must ask you questions. <laughs> the boot is oh. now on the other foot. Um, oh, okay. Sakina, um, Sakina will stick around and I'm sure ask you some questions. But let me get straight into it because time is not particularly our friend. David O'Sullivan, if you'd been at Nkandla, on Sunday, and you had one question to ask President Jacob Zuma, what would you have asked? You see, I'm not expecting this. I'm, I'm expecting to be the person asking questions. I'm, I'm, this, this, is, this is from left field. I, I would be asking the journalists, why on earth answer? are you I'm, I'm going to be asking other journalists, why on earth are you giving Carl Niehaus so much airtime? Why, yes. why aren't you correcting the, the, the fake news? Why aren't you challenging... The, the nonsense, because I didn't want poor old Tim's uncle having to bleep what I really do want to say. Why aren't you, why aren't you challenging what is being said? Have you read the judgments? Have you understood yes. the process of contempt of court? Do you understand where the nonsense is coming from, the fake news? And why are you not doing your jobs properly? Um, I don't know if that's really where you wanted me to go, John. Who, no, I mean, who I mean, my interviewee? Yeah, you, you're raising a really interesting, uh, a really interesting point. Tell me about you in your many, many years in journalism and press conferences. I mean, they are a funny sort of uh, area of journalistic work because, on the one hand, you you're not going to get anything that's particularly exclusive because there's so many other people there. Did you did you always kind of keep your best stuff for the minister? Could I just grab you for a minute and and not get because there's, there's become a little bit of a culture, I think, where people uh, want to be in... Press conferences have become very showy, in my view. Um, and you get people, and I, I would name someone like Gwede Mantashe as someone who, when he was SG at the, at the ANC, very much played that space. Um, and I sometimes wondered if journalists got very much lost in the theatre. Were, were you the catch-the-guy-in-the-parking-lot sort of fella? I definitely was. It would always... Yeah. I talk to you. Can I at the door stop? I would either before or after, but I'd always keep my powder dry. I didn't want anybody getting my sound bites or understanding my perspective at at all. Um, and I I find it uh, this 
the way of doing news conferences really odd. And I, I would rebel completely if I was a journalist going to news conferences where they say, uh, let's take six questions, they get written down, and then yes. those six questions. So where's your opportunity for a follow-up? I think the better way was to then point to people in the room. I also found that that issue of people asking questions in news conferences tended to be a, very much a show-off thing. Uh, when I yes. used to be the journalist in the field, it was always Kevin Dunn from ITV and James Robbins from the BBC asking the first question. And it was almost inevitable. It was kind of uh, like a, 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 a competition between the two of them. And I felt that it was it was grandstanding more than anything else. Yes. I'm never a big fan of news conferences. I understand it helps the person who's giving the news conference to get the media in one bite. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that as I think journalists should rebel and say we're not doing this way of six questions yeah. now another six in any way. I remember Did news conference. The only person you couldn't doorstop was uh, Nelson Mandela, and I remember yes. his news conferences were particularly difficult because, and I always get pushback from people on this one who weren't there, he was very grumpy. He was yes. always grumpy, and he didn't have any qualms <laughs> about tearing a strip off you if he didn't like the way you're questioned. And he waved, wagged his finger. There was a big yes. finger wag. I remember one quick story. John Harrison was a BBC correspondent, very sadly killed um, in the aftermath of the Avia Bear raid in Baputatswana. He was racing to a feed point and, and he had a car accident, was killed. But, uh, but uh, John Harrison was a very big man and he used to stand next to his cameraman and ask questions. And he asked Nelson Mandela a question one day and Nelson Mandela took exception to this question. And he said, young man, what you need to understand, young man. And he was berating John and on and on he went. And it was starting to become awkward and embarrassing. And yes. he carried on and eventually the tirade had finished and there was this terrible awkward silence. And John Harrison said, thank you, Mr. Mandela, for the reference to young. And the place erupted in laughter. <laughs> Mandela's big smile came out and yes. the whole situation was diffused. So, so, David, I want to go back to when you were... Uh, much, much, much younger. Do you have any memory of the first big news event manifesting in your world? And it might have been parents listening to the radio, uh, family members coming around and saying, have you heard and fill in the blank has just happened? Is, is there any memory that sits with you about the first awakening of, ah, this is news and maybe me, David O'Sullivan, might want to be part of that? Well, possibly not realizing it was news, but I'll tell you where I was first aware of a big incident. Um, I was uh, three years old, and only because I remembered that I was so concerned about who's next, that the person who was coming next was evil. And yes. when I think back at that, I, I, I chatted to my father years and years ago, and I said, you remember this particular time? And he thought about it, and he said, oh, that would have been the assassination of Hendrik Favut, because my father while he celebrated the, the, the death of Favut, he was more concerned about B.J. Foster coming to power. And I went, oh, my God, I just remember as a kid, there's this prime, you know, in the back of my brain, I was terribly concerned about an evil man yes. coming into my life. And uh, the first big story I was aware of that I took on board, I was still a little, a little IT, where I, my mother said he's going to be a journalist one day, was the first heart transplant. Uh, by okay. um, uh, Chris Barnard. Late, on late 60s. 
Yeah, so yeah. that's also in the 1960s. Then um, a, a big event, I remember uh, driving, I, I grew up in Edenvale, and my mom was taking me to the, there was a bookshop in Rosebank called the Children's Bookshop, and she was driving me there to go and buy a book. And we were driving on the fringes of Alex, and we came across these burning barricades, and the police said, turn around. And all I wanted to do was stay and find out what was going on. And it yes. was uh, Ju June the 16th, 1976. And Amazing. I still, I used to drive to my, my father, who's now passed away. He lived in an old age home in, um, in Modifontaine. I used to drive on that road and I could not ever pass that point without thinking, wow, this is where I first experienced the 76 uprising. But my, my mother knew, oh, he's going to be a journalist one day because I wanted to stay. No, let's not turn around. Let's watch what's happening. Yes. So I want to ask you uh, about your, your journalistic style, David. Uh, I've spoken to a few people in preparation for our chat, people who've produced you, and that would be a large number, so no one's incriminated here. But you, you, you are perceived as very cool and calm, um, somebody who doesn't get flustered. But if I could just add a little bit of myself, and I sometimes tell people I work with, you know, I have never stopped being scared. So if you throw me, see me throwing my hands in the air, like what on earth are we doing next? It's not because I'm angry, because I still at some fundamental level remain nervous, scared of dead air, scared of not knowing where to go. Did, have you stayed scared throughout your career or have you reached a place of Zen? And if so, could you please give me the address? <laughs> I, I don't think I, I, I've been nervous, um, but I've, I've never been scared. I, I'm, I rely on the fact that I can talk the hind leg off a donkey. In fact, yes. uh, Sakina and I were getting ready, and Tim's uncle said, uh, if there's any dead air, or because Sakina was worried that her connection wouldn't hold, I said, don't worry, I'll just talk. And I think all my <laughs> producers would know that I would just yes. grab a newspaper and then blah, 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 blah. I, I, I know it's not a great skill to have to be able to just talk rubbish for five minutes, but I yes. can. So I'm, I'm never, I've never been scared of that. I, I don't know. I, I love the, the surge of adrenaline. I love waking up in the morning and knowing that there's a big interview I'm going to do, or if, or if it's an interview I've done, I've recorded, or if it's a podcast that I've made, uh, I love the excitement of I'm going to be telling people this story. So I've never had fear, but I've always had great excitement. And I don't think I've ever lost the sense of adrenaline walking yes. into the studio. And I feel that if ever I walked in and felt, ah, I got this, meh, I, I've done it so many times. It's now, I've, I've worked out um, in February it's from when I did my very first radio show. It was 40 years. And I was wow. glad that I was at Kaya. Uh, I, I worked at Rhodes Music Radio, and 40 years later, I was on Kai FM doing the breakfast show, and I played the same song, uh, which was Stevie Wonder's Master Blaster. But in that time, I felt that if I've never not felt a little surge of adrenaline as the microphone goes on, I thought if I ever lost that surge of adrenaline, yes. then it would be time to stop. David, is there an interview that you have I wouldn't say haunt you because you don't strike me as a I'm haunted by sort of guy. But is there an interview that you would you wish you could have a do over that you yes. for some yes. reason you just and, and, and I think everybody at whatever level of broadcasting they've, they've been in will think, ah, I wish I'd asked that. or I wish I hadn't let them get away with the other yes. thing. Any, 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 anyone that particularly sticks on that? 
There, there are two, and I'll, I'll be quick with the first one. Um, we were broadcasting from outside Parliament. It was the, the budget. My worst experiences, I hated the budget um, because it had just been delivered. There was no time to yes. digest it, and immediately the, the minister would be in front of you and you had to ask uh, sensible questions. And I remember I hadn't done the greatest job in making sense of what I should prioritize. And the next thing, Pravin Gordon was sitting in front of me, and he was a no-nonsense bloke. <laughs> and I... Was I decided? Was. <laughs> yes, still is, uh, and I could see he was harassed and he was in a bad mm-hmm. mood. And I thought, oh, let me dissipate the mood by asking a light question. And I said, uh, "Oh dear Minister, I'm sure you've got um, all your cabinet colleagues now knocking on the door with begging bowls." And he just stared at me. He said, "Let me get into what I'm doing here." And he went through his laundry list of things and he left. Oh, I really could have asked a better question. But I'll tell you the one I really regret. Um, In 1986, I was working at Capital Radio, and um, a a guy was with there, James Lorimer, who's now an MP. Mm -hmm. He and I decided to do a a program on the 10th anniversary of the Soweto uprising. And one of the people uh, uh, who gave the order to open fire was Brigadier Tiernus Royeris Swanepoel, one of the great demons devils of of apartheid South Africa. Uh, He tortured many, many political activists. He was evil personified. You think that Mm -hmm. uh, Eugene de Kock was bad? This man was the epitome of evil. And Mm -hmm. he kept a very low media profile because he he didn't have to have one. But he stood for parliament. Uh, In those days, we had the um, uh, representation where you actually voted for an MP in your area. Right, right. Uh, Constituencies constituencies and I was living in West Dean and Puck Boerter was the incumbent as the foreign uh, foreign affairs minister as well so the, he was the national party man and for the conservative party up pops Roy Raswanapul so we had a phone number for him and I phoned him up and I said look could I interview you about the Soweto uprising and he said no I don't I do not talk to you about that if you want to ask me about parliament and, my, and running for parliament, I'm happy to do the interview. I said, no, I, it, it was about Soweto. He said, no, I'm not doing it. But I saw that he lived on a farm called Katima Molilo, which is in the Caprivi Strip, and I'd been yes, there. Yes, yes. So I said to him, why have you named your farm Katima Molilo? Mm-hmm. Because I've been there. And he was quiet for a second. He said, and then he tested me. He said, did you go to the toilet uh, the, the, the special outdoor toilet. And I knew what he was referring to. There was a toilet in a baobab. And I said, yes. ah, the one in the baobab tree. Yes, I, I went to that toilet because you had to go to the toilet in the baobab tree. And he listened to my auntie. He said, you can come Thursday, two o'clock or whatever it was. And so we right. got the interview. So when we got there, I'd left my microphone behind. And so I used what was then called a condenser microphone on my tape recorder. So the quality was terrible. But at the time, we didn't know that this was the chief torturer. That wasn't yes. clear to white South Africans. And so I missed an entire line of questioning mm-hmm. of Roy Raswanapul, who rarely gave interviews. And there I had him sitting in front of me. He did give us an immortal quote, 
if I had to, talking about Soweto 76, if I had to do it again, I would do it again. I have no regrets. Those people had to die. And I've got that interview on a reel-to-reel tape. I'm pointing over there because it's in my cupboard at the back there. And I haven't listened to it again because I'm too embarrassed about the sound quality. So my do-over would be Terence Royer's Swanepoel. Yeah, it'd be interesting to sort of have a panel with him and Praveen Gordon. I wonder how that would go. You, you, <laughs> I wouldn't you, you moderate could that. that. Yeah. But tell, tell me this, David. I'm very, very interested in what you said, your archive, because I think you've people have hugely over the years enjoyed um, your real grasp of history, the long timelines over which you understand stories, um, and, and, and very much delivered with, with, with the flavor of the sense that you were there for those moments of, of great history. Is it, I know it's in your, your cabinet behind you, um, yes. but, but is a lot of it in your head or yes. are you also like the rest, well, certainly like me, or have you become a click-click guy where, well, for example, a caller's talking, you're click-clicking to find out who actually scored the winning try in that particular <laughs> rugby match, or is it all in the O'Sullivan archive? Uh, there, there's a fair amount in my head, but uh, I often worry about the uh, veracity of my memory. I, I realize that memory is quite fallible. Yeah, so I I sometimes wonder, did, have I actually thought of it correctly? I remember once, uh, this was nothing to do with journalism, but illustrates my point. I was uh, going to Ellis Park with some mates and we witnessed a hit run right outside the stadium in the pouring rain and a big bloke had been knocked over and was now lying in the gutter and water was pooling around him and he was starting to drown and my friend and I managed to roll him out and we gave statements to the police. Um, the guys who hit him got caught and nothing came of a criminal trial. Three years later, there was a civil case and his lawyer said, could we redo our statements? Now we relived that moment every time we went to Ellis Park, we'd talk about it. The second time I had to make a statement, the lawyers came back to me and said, we can't use your statement. There are too many differences of material fact. I said, they can't be. I've been, this has been a part of, in my head yes. for th the past three years. I'd left out the whole section about it raining and him lying in the gutter, which mm, was mm, fundamental mm. to the story. And I thought, how could I have left such an important part out? And years, in fact, the other week, I was chatting to the mate I was with at the time. And I told him the story. I said, you remember we were at that hit and run? And he said, what hit and run? So he'd yeah. completely forgotten the whole thing. But the incidents where I've got a cassette recording of it, then right. I can play it over because I can hear myself. I can hear my voice and I, and I can replay those. And it's always the flashbulb memories. Those are the cassettes I always kept, the big ones. I had interviews with Chris Harney and those will always mm. stand out and I always kept those interviews. So there I've, I feel my memory is pretty cool. David, you took a, a, a detour into law. Um, I don't know if I should call it a detour. Maybe it was just a particularly scenic or, uh, yep. or otherwise part of, a, of, of the same journey, but, but you'll tell us. Um, did, did you hanker for journalism during that time or did you immerse yourself sufficiently in law to think maybe this could be what I want to do? No, so the reason I did it was because um, in the 80s, we were subject to so many restrictions in terms of the emergency regulations uh, and statutory legislation. There was the Internal Security Act, uh, Prisons Act, Police Act, you name it, that restricted the media. And I always felt that we, the lawyers were too conservative in their interpretation. And I felt that we, I needed to study law to 
understand how journalists get to get around uh, these terrible restrictions. So uh, in 1991, I took myself back to university. I was 30, uh, 29, and I, I'd made enough money as a foreign correspondent working for foreign radio stations based in South Africa to put myself right. through varsity and with the sole aim of becoming this uh, championing human rights uh, lawyer. And as I started studying, what did they start doing? They started repealing all that legislation. Effectively, well, they knew you were of, coming. Yeah, they saw it. They saw me coming and they thwarted me. And I, because I was an, I started doing my articles at Weber Wenzel in their media law department, working for the Star right. Sowetan, Pretoria News and Carte Blanche. I um, also freelanced at 702 reading the news. So I never stopped being on the radio. And in fact, the two biggest stories that I ever did were actually while I was an article clerk working at uh, freelancing. I did the, the Bishu Massacre, which was during my September holidays from university. I, sh right. I should have been studying. And I decided on a whim to go down to Bishu and got the biggest story of my life. And also, I was on the news desk on New Year's Day when Chris Harney was assassinated, and the lady over the road phoned me and told me what had happened um, as it was happening. Uh, her husband, yes. as she described it, her, her husband had jumped over the fence and that was trying to revive him. This obviously wasn't on air, but I then had to sit on the story for an hour while I waited for a journalist to go to the scene at mm, Dawn Park mm. to confirm it. So I, I stayed in journalism. And it was when Weber Wenzel asked me to write cease and desist letters to Chinese traders to stop them selling fake Levi jeans, which felt like I was just being a big bully for an American corporate. Chris Gibbons phoned me and said, are you sure you want to do this law lot? Don't you want to come and join us full time? I resigned that very day, John, without exaggeration. I just thought I don't want to do this anymore. And I threw it all in and I didn't care. It might have been uh, unfinished business. But I was paying, I was in control of my own, own destiny. And in four years, I learned all I felt I wanted to yes. from law. Interesting. And David, let, let's go back to the nuts and bolts of the business. I, I think you and I are similar in one sense. I think we both uh, come in roughly an hour, hour and a half before the show starts. Um, yes. I know that would have been tricky at 7.02 because you would have had to go very quietly to get past John Robbie in his sleeping bag, who was there uh, in preparation. <laughs> for the show the next day. He was a completely different animal, as I understand it, in, in terms of preparation. Um, David, my screen shows you not there. I just want to confirm, are you still there? Okay. Um, David is gone. I'm here. And I am, at the moment, talking to myself. Let's see if we can get David back. Hi, Sakina. Save my bacon. Unmute your mic, please. Are you muted? There I am. So oh, great, I'm great. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it was lovely hearing about so much about the, um, the, the, the journey that you've been on. Um, and maybe the same question for you, but, but framed slightly differently. I mean, you must get this quite often where people say to you, I want to get into radio and they kind of have this view of a radio is something you sort of get in at, at on the fifth or sixth floor, whereas there's, there's actually the ground floor. How, how much, ah, I see David is back. Let me finish the question with, with, with Sakina. Your preparation style, are you, are you an early bird hours and hours before or, or is it all percolating in your head as you drive towards Auckland Park? 
It's definitely percolating because I would rather go to sleep uh, knowing what needs to happen. So um, I get greater comfort from that. So by the time I get there, I kind of know where I want to take this, what I want. Uh, But uh, yeah, it's still it's still nerve wracking. Um, And and I was listening to uh, both you and David talk about that. And this is something people don't understand that uh, even David, you said 40 years. I uh, was reminded this year that it's I've been in this business for 20 years and uh, I didn't even realize, but still the nerves every time before you go on, it's still there. And you're right. When you stop feeling that, give it up. Yeah. Stay with us, Sakina, um, because I'd like to to hear more about that from you. But David, um, lots of preparation before you go or do you leave a nice big space open in your head to say, okay, let's see what happens. I'm not going to, I'm not going to weigh myself down with lots of notes, lots of data. Yeah. So when people say, how long does it take to prepare for a show? I say it takes 40 years Yeah. Uh, because there's a lot of accumulated institutional knowledge that you bring to bear. So I then can leave those gaps knowing that I have the confidence to fill the whole should it come. So if listeners are throwing questions at me, I know that I'll be able to handle it. If I don't know the answer, I'm just going to say I don't know the answer. And and the beautiful thing of Google is, and with great producers, you can come up with answers quite quickly or they can find somebody who's got the answer. Yeah. But uh, my what I was doing, if I was doing the afternoon drive show, I'd always be listening to the morning show and then keeping abreast with the news when I was at Kaya and doing the uh, morning show um, well, when you were with me at Kaya, I would listen to you uh, to see how you had set the tone, how you'd wrapped up the date to make sure that there yes. was continuity when I went forward. And, and often there would be interviews that you had done that were so relevant to us and we knew we weren't going to get that guest again or the angle that you're taking that we couldn't, that nobody else was taking because you, you had that uniqueness of spotting, the, asking the question nobody else is asking. We could then replay a, a section of that interview. So it's really keeping up to speed with what else is happening on your radio station to make sure the momentum is being kept and keeping abreast of the news for talk radio and knowing a lot about a lot. Um, so I, I, you and I share great passion for sport. I will always be ready to go with anything sport related. I probably wouldn't be so attuned to pop culture. It's just not um, stuff that's relevant to me. But, um, yeah. It, it, I, I had you down as a kind of club scene guy, but obviously I've misjudged <laughs> you over, over many hey, years. In, in the 80s, and I'm sure you were there as well, where I, I used to hang out at all the clubs, Jamison's, King of Clubs, Dawson's, yeah. Rumours. I was I, I jawed excessively in the, in okay. the 80s and 90s. David, um you, you spoke about your love of sports. Uh, if, uh, what's the word? The universe said, we're going to give you a, a rerun on your life. You can cover the 94 election or you can cover the 95 World Cup. But you can't can, do both. Can, can, I, can I have the, uh, the, the 96 Olympic Games? Okay. Yeah, um, then it's... Okay, let, let's do that. 96 Olympic Games, Atlanta. Yeah. Okay, I'd, 96 I'd, Olympic Games, 94 election. Which would you do? Oh, it's, oh, jeez. No, it's 96, it's it's the Olympics. It's because yeah. it's Penny Haynes getting her, her gold medals and it's our first gold medals. Mm-hmm. It's Ezekiel Sepeng getting his silver medal against all odds. 
It's Marianne Creel getting her bronze, completely unexpected, and the pinnacle, one of my greatest days of my journalistic life, is being at the Olympic Stadium and watching Josiah Tagwani come in and win the marathon gold medal because I'd been telling everybody he was going to win it. I had, wow. I'd, I'd followed the Olympic marathon team. I, I knew them, and they had said of all of us, there were four of them, three ran, Lawrence Pugh was the reserve. He didn't run. And in fact, Lawrence Pugh, when they had chosen the three who had run, Lawrence Pugh was sent to Europe to go and run in Europe. And at the last second, uh, Olide Yawa got a stress fracture and they phoned him at the airport and said, get back here. You're in the team. Yeah. He walked away. His plane took off and blew up the air. It was the TWA plane. that. So he, Lawrence Pugh would have died in that plane, yes. not been for, for Lili Yawa. And they said they were having a tactic, surround them with green, so they were all wearing green, and if anybody broke away, the three of them would run that person back into the pack. And that started happening. And they and then whoever was strongest, um, closer to the end, would break away. And they all said, uh, it'll be Jossie, as they called Josiah Tugani, Jossie. So I was saying, Tugani will win the marathon. And he won the Amazing. marathon. And was it was just one of the best days just to see this little figure our guy mm. running into the stadium was the most phenomenal sight and so while 94 was extraordinary it became the same thing over and over again watching this miracle taking yes. place but the olympic games 14 12 days of, of glory i just watched south africa's flag flying so high constantly fantastic and david you you know, people know and respect and celebrate what you've given to radio. What, what has radio given you? Oh, it, it, John, it's just given me the best life. Uh, I, I don't think uh, now that I've, I'm able to sit back and I'm, I'm not on radio anymore and I, I choose not to be, I, I, I really will take a very long break and it may be permanent. I, I don't know. But right now it feels like it needs to be. I, I can reflect on the fact that this is, just been the, the, the best life of, uh, I could have. And I, when people say, um, uh, complain about the job and, oh, I'm so tired, I've worked long hours, I could, you haven't actually worked. That's not working. Go and dig trenches for a living. Go and sell fruit and veg uh, on a, on a, at a hawker's stand day in and day out. Go and be a lawyer where it is back-breaking, tedious, time-consuming, pressured work Try those for a change. But talking on the radio, interviewing people, being on camera, because I, I worked for 11 years doing SABC Sport, it has never been a chore. It has always been the best life. And I think what radio has done for me is it's made me appreciate what hard work really feels like. And I, I feel I flirted with that as a lawyer, but it's also given me an opportunity to be an opinion shaper. It's given me a sphere of influence. And at the same time, it's allowed me to have the greatest amount of fun doing all of that. And, and just, I suppose, people would, would, would look to you as somebody who, who they've learned things from. Is there anyone who you could say, I learned from many, many people, but I've never learned as much as I have from fill in the blank, if indeed you can fill it with one name? Um, I, I learned a lot from Gary Edwards, who uh, was at, Cap at, at 702 when I first joined, uh, who taught me the, 
the uh, adage, uh, match the mood, and I've used it constantly. What kind of program we're going to do today? Match the mood. When I went on air uh, just shortly after we heard that Nelson Mandela had passed away, and I thought, I have no idea what's going to happen here. And we crossed to his home in Houghton. I heard people singing and celebrating. I went, oh, okay, there's the mood. Match the mood. When I worked at Capital Radio, there was a wonderful man called Julian Potter, who was a trailblazer of pioneer of of journalism, radio journalism uh, at the SABC, and he set up the newsroom at Capital Radio. He taught me a lot, as did a man called Zahed Kachalia from the famous Kachalia family. He's now a big shot at the Australian Broadcasting mm -hmm. Corporation. I, I learned a lot from him. Then there was a guy um, who taught me that you could do news and sport. You didn't have to do one or the other. Mm -hmm. His name was John Perlman, and I, 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 I followed him. I thought that his his blend of news and sport was, 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 was absolutely correct. And, and just, just finally, I mean, um, you and Sakina had an interesting conversation about the, the, the state of radio at the moment. Um, I'm, I, I must admit, I'm quite enthralled by new voices and new talents that I hear all the time. And if I could extend that to, to broadcasting, uh, into television. Uh, they, they, I find really exciting uh, younger talent uh, all over the place. But going forward, and let's just talk about radio in general. Uh, it's an industry you love. And in that spirit of love, what do you want to see radio do more of? And what do you want to see radio perhaps do a lot less of than, than, than we're doing now? Um, what, what targets would you set for us as an industry? I would like to see more interrogation uh, uh, and, and much, much better preparation uh, by the journalists. I really do get incensed when people uh, mouth off on radio without being properly challenged. So I feel that there's a level of professionalism that has been lost. Um, Sakina, I, I mentioned to Sakina the fact that she came into broadcasting as a world person with kids. Now, I'm not saying you have to be married, you have to have children in order to do this job. I'm saying, though, you cannot come in with no life experience. We do need people with life experience so that they are able to cut through the rubbish and spot it. I am also encouraged by the the, the people who are coming through. And while Sakina has got a very bleak view, I love to see the rise and rise of people like Kathy Moklaklana, for example, um, on SAFM and on, on television. I think people of her caliber are, are setting the, the, the goal, or setting the, the bar. Uh, I look at the people I, uh, who were, I worked with at Kaya, who were just magnificent young people coming through, Mbalid um, Lamini, uh, Katlejo Sokoto, um, uh, oh, I'm, I'm going to leave people out, but there's some fa there's fabulous talent at, at, at Kaya FM, um, a guy called DJ Keys as a yeah. producer. These are young people at the start of their career, and I look at them and I said to them, you guys are all the future of radio. Uh, so mm. I, I think it, it, it's looking really good. And I see some wonderful black women who are coming through. And I hope that they all get the opportunities because I can see it's in their, it's in their bones. They are radio people in their bones. Great. Such a wonderful, optimistic note on which to end. We could chat for longer if we had more time, but we don't have more time. Uh, thanks for including me, Sakina. I've really enjoyed it. Let me hand things back to you. Well, it's actually David's session, Tate John, but great seeing you and uh, David as well. And yeah, it's um, it's exciting. It always is. And uh, we are 
optimistic. As I say, you know, David, yeah, I I see the dark clouds, but I, I, as I said, I don't think it's insurmountable. I, I think we, we, there, there's a lot that can be done, but um, we shouldn't shy away from the real issues uh, confronting us in the sector I, at the moment. I, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you've articulated them as clearly as you have, Sakina. Thank you very much. I've got to say, I did not know that John Perlman was going to come on and, and ask me questions, um, <laughs> the, unless I've missed the email somewhere. But it, it was an absolute delight. And it felt a bit weird being interviewed by you. I have to say, I'm never the one who's being interviewed. <laughs> so it, it was an yeah. absolute pleasure. And uh, it's always a pleasure chatting to you, John. And Sakina, it was a rare joy. I, I, I've absolutely loved chatting to you, and I don't see enough of you. Um, thank you so much uh, for your time. And John, thank you for such lovely questions, even though, my God, I hard. I see that um, somebody is saying uh, we need a, a book from me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A book from Sakina. <laughs> I, I think I think that can uh, we can do that as well. We can have the book from Sakina. I think let's wrap it all up. Thank you very much to Sakina Kamwendo, uh, who's got to go and do a radio show now. Am I right? 29 minutes. 29 yes. minutes. And, you know, John, just as a parting shot, talking about preparation. Yeah, I tell you, but that's a story for another day. Maybe next year, Radio Days, we'll talk about uh, producers and how we put it all together. Yeah. Good one. Thank you, Shakina. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And to everybody, if you come in late to this, uh, don't forget, we've got the podcast. Uh, It will be available on radiodaysafrica.co.za. Thank you to the Conrad Adenauer Stiftung Media Program, Sub-Sahara Africa, the NAB Media Heads 360, Wise Buddha Jingles, US Embassy in Pretoria, RCS Sound Software, Iona FM, Samro, podnews.net, and of course, the inimitable, incomparable Tim's uncle. Goodbye. That was a Radio Days Africa audio amplified podcast brought to you by the Vitz Radio Academy. For more information and podcasts, click to radiodaysafrica.co.za.